Good morning, heathens, and happy Murder in the News Monday that I'm going to try to release every single Monday morning because the rest of the regular news is hot, scary garbage, and you know you'd rather hear this anyway. Now, I've scoured the internet for the headlines so that you don't have to. So happy commuting. So our first article comes from KARE11, a news source, with the headline, Julissa Thaler, guilty of six-year-old son's murder. Thaler was found guilty of both first- and second-degree murder, automatically receiving a life sentence without parole. This happened in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Julissa Thaler, the woman charged with shooting and killing her six-year-old son last spring, and from what I heard, in his little high chair, was found guilty of murder Wednesday afternoon. The jury found Thaler guilty of one count each of premeditated first-degree murder and second-degree murder in just under two hours of deliberations. KARE 11's Lou Reguse reports Thaler automatically receives a life sentence without parole for a premeditated murder conviction. Now, Eli Hart's body was discovered in the trunk of Thaler's car on May 20, 2022, after police pulled her over for a traffic violation. The boy had been shot multiple times with a shotgun, and a weapon was also found in the trunk. Thaler was involved in a custody dispute with Eli's father, Tony Hart. Following Eli's death, Hart sued Dakota County Social Services, alleging that employees returned his son to Thaler despite concerns of alleged drug use and deteriorating mental health. Quote, On behalf of Eli's family, Tori Hart would like to thank the jury, the court, the Hennepin County Attorney's Office, and Justice Partners for their good work. End quote read a statement released after the verdict. Quote, this is a tragic and heartbreaking event that could have been avoided if Eli had never been returned to a dangerous home, end quote, meaning his biological mother. Both the state and Thaler's defense team rested their cases late Wednesday morning. The defendant told Judge Jay Quam that she would not take the stand to testify on advice from her attorneys, and the defense rested without calling a single witness. Prosecutors wrapped up their case by calling Orono Police Detective Kyle Krishner, the lead investigator in the shooting death of six-year-old Eli Hart. Reguse reports that Kirshner went over a plethora quote-unquote, of details, offering compelling testimony on Google search items found on Thaler's computer and electronic devices. This is, again, the biological mother. So among the subjects, Detective Kirshner says, were searched. How to keep child away from other parent with visitation. How to fake being home to the cops. How much blood can a six-year-old lose? qualifying accidental deaths. How much does life insurance pay for dead child? Disgusting. So Kirshner also told jurors of about the five insurance policies that were attempted to be in Eli's name. During cross-examination, defense attorney Rebecca Nudlid brought up other discovered search terms, which included questions about blood bank and Red Cross blood donations. 
They implied the, quote, how much blood can a six-year-old lose, end quote, searches out of context and actually regarded blood donation. In the defense's closing arguments, attorney Brian Leary conceded that Thaler, quote, aided and assisted in Eli's murder, but added, quote, she's not charged with the crime that they've proved, end quote. But, you know, there are also reports with police saying there is no doubt who pulled the trigger. So little Eli Hart's body was discovered in the trunk of his mother's car on May 20th, 2022, after police pulled her over for a traffic violation. The boy had been shot multiple times with a shotgun, and a weapon was also found in the trunk. Thaler had been involved in a custody dispute with Eli's father, Tony. Following Eli's death, Hart sued Dakota County Social Services, alleging that employees returned his son to his mother despite concerns of alleged drug use and deteriorating mental health. Yikes. So our next headline in the news comes from a website called Her, but this is about the Madeline McCann's family thinking that they may have found their daughter alive, so to speak. Um, the headline says, Madeline McCann's family asked for DNA test on Polish girl claiming to be Madeline. So a Polish woman has attempted to show evidence that proves she is the missing British girl, Madeline McCann. Julia Wandelt went viral this week after posting on Instagram claiming that she is Madeline, who was just four years old when she disappeared from her family's holiday apartment in Portugal in 2007. I think we've all heard of the case. So Julia, who is 21 years old, claims to have a freckle on her leg and a speck in her eye in the same places as Madeline. She also says she looks like Maddie's parents, Kate and Jerry McCann. She now claims that the missing girl's family have asked her to take a DNA test. A source close to the McCanns told the Mirror, quote, The family are taking no chances. They are willing to look at all leads. It is important they look at all of the factors. The girl does look similar. There's no disputing that. However, side note, I kind of dispute that, but that's neither here nor there. Quote, if what she says is true, there is every chance it could be her. It all adds up. It is believed a McCann family member has come forward to offer to take part in that DNA test. Now, since this article, it has come out that that woman in Poland is actually not Madeline McCann. So super sad and the search continues. So the next headline comes from the Ledger Inquirer, which is part of the McClatchy Media Network. And it says, you know, woman shoots parents and uses chainsaw to dismember their bodies. Pennsylvania officials say this is this article is back from the end of January. And it says a woman has been charged with murder after her parents were found dismembered in their Pennsylvania home, officials say. Montgomery County District Attorney Kevin R. Steele said the severed body parts of Reed Beck, 73, and Miriam Beck, 72, were found inside the Abington Township home on Tuesday, January 17th. 
Officers were dispatched to the Philadelphia area home after the victim's son went to check on his parents. He found a body covered by a bloody sheet and saw feet sticking out. That body was of Reed Beck, who was wrapped in a white sheet and comforter, Steele said in the news briefing streamed by KYW. He had been decapitated, it was reported. His wife's body was also discovered in the home. Quote, a chainsaw was found, and both Reed and Miriam were found in different stages of dismemberment, according to the district attorney. An autopsy, which Steele noted was, quote, not easy to conduct because of the condition of the victims, revealed the parents were shot in the head. Their body parts were put into trash bags and into two separate trash cans, the district attorney said. Verity Beck, the couple's 49-year-old daughter who also lives in the home, was in the home's kitchen when officers arrived. When the officers asked where her parents were, she is accused of replying, quote, but they are dead, end quote. Reed and Miriam Beck were last heard from on January 7th. It's believed their daughter may have been texting on their behalf in the days that followed. Detectives said they found three guns with spent rounds in Verity Beck's bedroom. The motive for the killings is unclear. Verity Beck was charged with first-degree and third-degree murder. Miriam Beck worked as a nurse at Lower Moreland High School from 1998 to 2018. Reed Beck was remembered as a, quote, teacher, mentor, and friend by a Steamfitters Local Union 420 worker. The daughter is jailed and is not eligible for bail. So coming from ABC 13, a bit more on the daughter that killed her parents, right? The headline says, woman accused of killing dismembering parents placed on leave from job as Catholic school teacher. Quote, we are horrified and shocked by this matter, a spokesman for the Archdiocese of Philadelphia said. So the woman accused of killing her parents and then dismembering them in their home has been placed on administrative leave from her job as a teacher at a local Catholic school. Oh, thank God. Verity Beck, 43, is charged with first-degree murder and third-degree murder being held without bail, as we said. Um, she killed her parents on January 7th, but the gruesome scene wasn't discovered until Tuesday night. This is days later. So a spokesperson for the Archdiocese of Philadelphia said in a statement provided to Action News on Friday that Beck was a teacher at St. Catherine School for Special Education. He said Beck had not been present in the school since Christmas break, adding there was, quote, no indication that she was potentially involved in acts of this nature. We are horrified and shocked by this matter. So she has been placed on administrative leave pending the outcome of the criminal process. She had just started working there last January. She had produced criminal background checks and child abuse clearances that showed no signs of misconduct. No complaints had been lodged against her during her time at St. Catharines. And that's about all we have about the daughter who dismembered her parents. So in other news, we have an article from NBC News from the Crime and Courts section. 
Dismembered body of Chinese model found in Hong Kong, ex-husband and former in-laws arrested. Police said that they found body parts belonging to Abby Choi, sorry if I mispronounced that, in a refrigerator inside a house believed to have been rented by her former father-in-law. So the article says the ex-husband and former in-laws of 28-year-old Chinese model Abby Choi, again, I hope I didn't mispronounce, were arrested after parts of her dismembered body were found in a Hong Kong residence. Hong Kong police found her legs in a refrigerator inside a house in Longmei Village in Tai Po District on Friday. The house is believed to have been rented by the victim's former father-in-law only a few weeks ago. Police also found tools used to dismember human bodies, including, sit down, meat grinders, and chainsaws, as well as the victim's ID, credit cards, and other belongings in the home. The search for more of Choi's limbs, including her head and torso, still continue. A total of four people, including Choi's ex-husband, former in-laws, and brother-in-law, were arrested in connection with the murder, police said. The ex-husband, former father-in-law, and his eldest son are being charged with murder, while her former mother-in-law faces one count of perverting the course of justice, the police said last Sunday. Authorities believe Choi had financial disputes with her ex-husband and his family involving tens of millions of Hong Kong dollars. Because, of course, it's about money. So on Action News 5, we have an article that says father arrested, charged in four-month-old son's death. So coming out of Tacoma, Washington, a Tacoma man was arrested in the death of his four-month-old son earlier this week and was charged Friday with second-degree murder. Samuel Kennedy, 23, was arrested Tuesday after a hospital social worker called Tacoma police about a child brought in with head trauma, K-O-M-O, reported. The doctor said the boy's injuries were consistent with abusive head trauma and that the baby had recent similar injuries, according to probable cause documents from the Pierce County Prosecutor's Office. The child died the following day. Police said the child's mother said the couple had three young children and that she had been at work on Tuesday. Kennedy said he picked up his son because he was crying and eventually put him back in his rocker, but minutes later, the baby exhaled deeply, which caused concern, documents said. He then discovered his son wasn't breathing, documents said. The police said Kennedy initially denied dropping or shaking his son, but after further investigation, was arrested. Police said he later admitted to shaking the baby after becoming frustrated. The boy died of blunt force trauma to his head, though, according to the Pierce County Medical Examiner's Office. It wasn't immediately known if Kennedy has a lawyer to comment on the case, but his bail was set Friday, this past Friday, at $1.5 million. So another headline coming out of CBS News, 48 Hours. Husband of woman murdered with an axe convicted 40 years after her death. 
So this one's in a bit of story form. Again, I'm, I'm reading the articles to you, but it says, On a wintry night near Rochester, New York, retired detective Mark Liberator shows 48 hours how he helped bring one of the coldest cases in America to trial, which I would debate that, but I digress. On February 19, 1982, Police officers arrived at the Brighton home of Jim and Kathy Krosnick and encountered a horrific scene. The body of a 29-year-old mother, Kathy Krosnick, dead in bed with an axe lodged in her head. Yes, guys. So Detective Mark said it was a single blow to the head and she died instantly, according to the medical examiner. Jim, the husband, told police he arrived home from work and found his wife's body, his three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. His three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Sarah, was there and unharmed. Minutes later, he showed up at his neighbor's house, seemingly traumatized with Sarah in his arms. The neighbor called 911 after Jim told her he thought Kathy was dead. So the neighbor to the 911 officer said, her husband's here and he can't even talk. The dispatcher said, okay, I'll have someone right over there. Dispatch immediately sent first responders. Brighton Police Lieutenant Bill Flood arrived to get a statement from the husband. The detective said that he was moaning and that he was crying. So Jim, a Kodak company economist, said he'd left for work that morning at the usual time, you know, around 6.30 a.m. He said he'd been gone all day. Kathy had planned to stay home to take care of Sarah. The detective said that you could tell that the little girl had been left alone. It looked obvious to us that she had dressed herself. It seemed obvious to Detective Flood that Sarah was confused about what had happened, Sarah said she'd seen a bad man sleeping in mommy and daddy's bed with an axe in his head. They asked if the man was wearing black or white. She said he was many colors. But Flood thinks Sarah hadn't seen a man at all, that it was her mother in bed covered with blood. So the murder in and of itself is baffling and hard to believe. But you add this element where Kathy's daughter has been left in the house with her murdered mother. It's inconceivable that somebody could do that. So it is said that the first investigators at the scene found no significant forensic clues like fibers or fingerprints, and in 1982, DNA had not yet become an investigative tool. We have to remember that. But there was something about the scene that struck them immediately. It looked like someone had pushed the pause button on a burglary. One of the detectives said, quote, And there was a door leading into the house that had a pane of glass broken out, and there was a maul, which is like a heavier axe, on the ground leaning up against the wall right next to that. The axe found at the door and the one in Kathy's head both belong to the Krosnecks. In the dining room, there were valuable items scattered, and on the floor was Kathy's purse, with the contents strewn about. There was a tea set on the floor, too. Another detective said everything was standing straight up like it was set there neatly, and a black garbage bag next to it, 
Inside was a faint shoe print as if someone had stepped in it to hold it open. But despite many apparent signs of a burglary, Liberator and Hunt say the most important one was missing. And it's the fact that nothing was taken. And another detective said, well, let's face it, I mean, more often than not, it's the husband. It's domestic, so police are going to go there. But could Jim have committed such a brutal murder and left his baby daughter alone in that house? Well, 48 Hours spoke to friends and family who said the couple seemed happy. Oh, see, there's one of your clues. They seemed happy. Kathy and Jim had grown up in the same small town. Her dad had been a truck driver. Jim's family owned a successful carpet store. They met in high school, dated in college, married after graduation. Very white picket fence. So... When they began to question Jim, of course, his behavior seemed a little off, but he was cooperative. He was willing early on to give statements. Jim had spoken to investigators that night and the next morning, even agreeing to another meeting that afternoon. But when the time came, he was gone. Less than 24 hours after he had found his wife murdered, he had left. His parents had driven from Michigan and returned there with Jim and Sarah. Police say Jim left town without telling them. The detective said, you know, I wouldn't consider it normal, but this is America and he's free to do so. So autopsy findings reportedly narrowed the time of death to be between 4.30 a.m. and possibly as late as 7.30 a.m., an hour after Krosnick claimed to have left the house. With no direct evidence against him or any clear motive, authorities didn't want to try their luck with a jury, and the investigation went cold. So they decided to dredge up Kathy's case later, and in 2015, the FBI had provided resources to help Brighton police with the investigation. Detective Steve Hunt said, quote, I mean, you look at all those boxes of paperwork and evidence. It is daunting. So they brought Jim back in, and they said, you know, I'm sure you think about this. Who could have possibly done this? And Jim said, well, I did for a long time. But then they said, you know, the detective said, did you have anything to do with this? And Jim said, I didn't kill Kathy. Detective Mark said, I disagree. Jim said, well then. And the detective said, I think you did. And they said you could kind of see his heart pounding through his shirt. So they drudged up all the old evidence, DNA, so on and so forth, and they believed that they had enough evidence. So armed with the medical examiner's opinion on Kathy's time of death, along with what they believe is evidence of a staged burglary, prosecutors went before a grand jury. Jim was indicted on November 1st, 2019, and he voluntarily surrendered to authorities the week later. But, you know, his attorneys say that there's just this mountain of doubt in his case because Jim is not the Brighton Axe murderer. So, as it turns out, he was. On to the next. So, those are some kind of unfamiliar cases to most of you, I'm sure. But also, let's check in on some that we've been dealing with for a while, right? So, coming out of KMVT 11... We have a headline that says Lori Vallow Daybell and Chad Daybell appear in court for a pretrial conference. Grandparents prepare for trial. This is Kay and Larry Woodcock were the grandparents of JJ, one of the murdered children. So in Fremont County, Idaho, 
Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow Daybell were in a Fremont County courtroom Thursday morning for a pretrial conference. Several motions were heard, including one to sever the cases and another regarding mental health. Chad Daybell's attorney, John Pryor, argued that the state hadn't turned over evidence and delayed testing in the case, saying he cannot go through the amount of evidence in the amount of time left before trial. Multiple county prosecuting attorneys argued on the state's behalf, saying Pryor has been aware of the evidence for over two years. The state also argued a motion that Vallow Daybell's attorneys will use her mental health as a defense. Vallow Daybell's defense says their experts agree that she has a mental illness, but they respect the court saying she is competent for trial, which begins on April 3rd, guys. Calendar's out. April 3rd. So after the hearing, J.J. Vallow's grandmother talked with KMVT about the hearing and what it feels like to be so close to the start of the trial. Kay and Larry Woodcock are preparing to spend 10 weeks in Boise to get justice for their grandson, J.J. Vallow. J.J.'s mother, or adopted mother, Lori Vallow Daybell, and her current husband, Chad Daybell, are accused of murdering the then seven-year-old and his sister, which is Lori Vallow's biological daughter, in 2019. I'm sure we're all very well aware of the case. Out of all of the hearings they've attended, this was the first time the Woodcocks had seen both Daybells in the courtroom together. This was also the first time those in the courtroom saw the pair try to speak to each other in between hearings. They were in court for a series of motions. One topic was Vallow Daybell's mental health, which we all know has been up and down. There's nothing mental there that made her think she could go kill people and get away with it, said Kay Vallow Woodcock, which is the grandmother of J.J. So after years of waiting, and we've all been patiently waiting, the trial is around the corner and the Woodcocks are ready for it. So... So another story uh, coming out of KPVI6 News. The headline is Vallow, Daybell in court for pretrial hearing as trial looms. We're six weeks away from the scheduled trial for Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. And this was written on February 23rd, 2023. So six weeks away from that. Both were back in Fremont County Court Thursday morning for a pretrial conference and motion of hearings. That's pretty much all you would want to hear from that particular case. So coming from the U.S. Sun, a news article that states, In the Dark, Delphi Murders Update as Cops Slammed for Keeping People in the Dark About the Case. So, as we know, the bodies of young teens Abby Williams and Libby German were found on February 14, 2017. Five years and a huge police investigation later, and Richard Allen was arrested on suspicion of their murders in October 2022. But Indiana State Police have now faced criticism after they were accused of refusing reporters' requests for information about the arrest and holding back crucial details until their press conference days later. Indiana Public Access Counselor Luke Britt told Fox 59, quote, Simply put, the law enforcement agencies at play could have anticipated an onslaught of requests for the arrest information and prepared accordingly instead of keeping the public in the dark. End quote. 
So the bodies of Libby and Abby were discovered on February 14, 2017, as we've said, along an abandoned railroad in Delphi, Indiana. The case had gone unsolved for years, with no leads, no suspects charged with the murders of the 8th graders. Now, Richard Allen, who is a married father and pharmacy tech at a local CVS store in the heart of the town, was arrested on October 26, 2022, and charged with the murders of the two best friends. Investigators have released limited information about the evidence that led to his arrest, only that a bullet found near the victim's bodies cycled through Allen's gun. So a bullet found near the girl's the markings on that spent bullet matched what would be the markings inside of his gun. Allen voluntarily went to the Indiana State Police post to speak to authorities about the recovered bullet. Police claim the suspect failed to explain why the bullet from his gun was at the crime scene, saying he, quote, never allowed anyone to use or borrow his firearm. One key piece of evidence that the police had previously released to the public was an audio recording from a video on Libby's phone, the one we've all heard where he says, down the hill. Okay, so authorities also gave a picture of the man wearing a dark jacket and jeans. Allen's arrest affidavit reveals that when the man approached the girls, one of the victims mentioned the word gun. Close to the end of the video, the man is seen and heard telling Libby and Abby, guys down the hill. Once the girls begin to go down the hill, the video ends. Investigators do believe that Allen is the unidentified man in Libby's video and the sketches released by the police throughout the years. He has, of course, denied any involvement in the girls' deaths, pleading not guilty to two counts of murder. So, another headline coming out of Fox 59 says Delphi suspect Richard Allen's next hearing scheduled for June. Delphi murder suspect Richard Allen has a new date for his bail hearing. The judge held a virtual hearing Friday, this past Friday, with Allen, his attorneys, and prosecutors to set a new date. Allen is now scheduled to appear in court for a hearing on June 15th. So, again, get your calendars, guys. June 15th. A June 16th date has also been set aside in case the court needs additional time. So, maybe we'll get some more answers by then. Who knows? So there's been a whole lot of information about Brian Koberger, right? And I really hesitate to share anything because we all know that everything, every time something comes out, everything gets blown out of proportion and then it's either proven completely untrue or irrelevant but I found this kind of interesting. It's from the Daily Mail, so take that as you may. And it says Brian Koberger could face firing squad if he's convicted of Idaho murders thanks to new bill introduced by local lawmaker. Brian Koberger, 28, may face a firing squad if he is found guilty for the quadruple homicide of four Idaho college students last year. Prosecutors could potentially recommend the death penalty if he is found guilty. And then lastly about Brian is something that you guys may have already heard, but I thought I would share in case you might not. This comes out of Newsweek, and the headline says, Brian Koberger's alleged photos on phone, highly significant, ex-FBI agent says. 
The article reads, Brian Koberger allegedly having pictures on his phone of one of the four University of Idaho students he is accused of killing is, air quotes, highly significant, according to a former FBI agent. He's been charged over the deaths of Madison, 21, Kaylee, 21, Zanna, 20, and Kernodal's 20-year-old boyfriend, Ethan. They were found stabbed to death inside of a rental home near the university campus in Moscow, Idaho, on November 13th. And then there were two roommates that survived. We know all of that. A lawyer who previously represented him said he was, quote, eager to be exonerated and a plenary... A lawyer who previously represented him said he was, quote, eager to be exonerated. A preliminary hearing is set to begin on June 26th, so calendars again. June 26th for Brian. Authorities found multiple photos of one of the female victims on a phone seized from Koberger. The magazine, People, did not reveal who the alleged photos were of or if they had been taken by Koberger or if he had just taken some screenshots, you know what I'm saying? But the former FBI special agent and former CIA officer told news station that if it was true, it would show a pattern of behavior, which I think we all understand. So that is that. And that's it, folks. That's what I have for you guys for your first Monday murder in the news to put up with the commute that's bullshit and that this news is a hell of a lot better than the regular news, which is a sad sack of vomit. I hope you guys have a safe and wonderful commute into work. Have a good day, and you'll be hearing from me again on Thursday.